So we're going to continue looking at the, the New Testament epistle to the church at Philippi. We're going to look at Philippians 2, 12, and 13 uh, this morning. Uh, but before I read that, let me pray uh, for God to, to help us uh, understand and apply what uh, his word says. Uh, join me in prayer. Father, we come to you uh, today uh, thanking you for the reality that Jesus Christ entered our world. And I pray, Lord, that as we think about that and the grace and the mercy that is so richly displayed there, that it would move us and change us uh, to be rich in grace and mercy toward one another. Uh, That's kind of the point that you're making here in this text. And so I pray that you would do that work in us today. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 2, 12 to 13, text is uh, up on the screens behind me. Uh, This is God's word. We should hear it and respond as such this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, So, uh, Nate, you can go ahead and put put my notes up there. So what Paul's doing in this text is he's reminding the Philippians uh, that they obeyed the gospel when it was first preached to them. So remember when, when Paul comes to Philippi, he proclaims the gospel, people hear it and believe it, and it begins to change their lives. And so now that he is imprisoned and it's uncertain about whether he'll be able to ever come see them in person again, he is urging them to continue to obey, right? That's, that's exactly what the, the, the text says. As you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, keep doing that. Keep obeying. And why would he say that? And why would he call them beloved? Well, he's saying that and he's calling them beloved because there are tensions in the church. We know uh, as he has unpacked this uh, uh, letter that it is we typically think of Philippians about uh, being about joy. And it is about joy, but it's also about unity in the church and and the way in which we uh, uh, live and, and treat live with one another and treat one another. And so that's. That's what he's getting at here. He's lovingly calling on them to obey. And the way he does that is he says to them that he wants them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. So now what, what does that mean in this context? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the things to, to keep in mind about this is, is we never work our salvation for ourselves. So what he's, what he's getting at here is something other than coming to faith uh, being saved by the gospel. What he's meaning here is that the gospel needs to work itself as God works the gospel in us, that there will be manifestation of the gospel working out of us as God does uh, this, this good uh, work. But the thing that we forget about this is we tend to take this text, and, and you can find a million sermons on this, where guys, uh, uh, men and women, preachers, take this text out of context. And what they do with it is they say, aha, see what this text is about is about human effort, our effort, and our growth in grace. That God's at work in us and we should work that out in, uh, in uh, conjunction with God, uh, that we cooperate with him so that we grow in holiness, that we grow in Christ-likeness. And that's true. You should do that. We should do that. But the context of this is is more important than than we realize, because the way we tend to think 
about the way our sanctification, that's what growth in grace, looking like Christ looks like. But what that means is that that is something that I do on my own for myself. And maybe it's for the glory of God, but really it's for me to get better. And getting, and I'm for all of you getting better. That would be great. You all need to be better. And you need to get better. So let's, let's work on being better, right? But, <laughs> you know, let, let's work on being better for a better reason than just getting better or just getting better for ourselves. What Paul's getting at here is, is that we work out our, our, so we work, we work this thing out with fear and trembling, but the thing that we're working out, we work it out together. Because remember that the, the context here, this is being read in the context of a public worship service, right? That's, that's, that's the thing. And this word for salvation here, uh, where he says that, that uh, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is the same word that's used in Acts 27:34, where Paul is uh, about to be shipwrecked. They hadn't had anything to eat for 14 days. And so he says to the crew on the ship, therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. That word there for strength is the same word here that's called salvation. So for our health, right? For what, what, what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi is, is that we work this thing out this, uh, for our health, for the health of the body, for the health of, of the church, and that it is a precious thing to God that we do that. Now, the way we tend to think about this is, is that we, uh, we spend all of our time and energy as Christians you know, we, we have our own individual quiet times. We have our own individual relationship with God. And, 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 and that's good as far as it goes. And certainly the gospel comes to us. We, we must, as individuals, exercise faith and repentance. But this thing that God is doing here is bigger than just us. It is something that he is doing for the whole of the body, the whole of the church. And so he's reading this. Paul wants this read in the context of the local church. Remember, this church has internal divisions. Euodia and Syntyche are uh, at each other's throats. And there's some people that believe they're, they're even suing each other in a secular court of law, which is a terrible, terrible thing that should never happen. Christians should never sue each other, ever. And so what, what's, happening, what's happening here is that there's this undercurrent in the church. And so he's, he's addressing that, right? So what needs do the Philippians have? Well, they need to take the gospel that Paul has preached to them, and they need to apply it to their lives together uh, as a church. Because what, what he has just said to them in chapter 2, uh, in the verses before these verses, is let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That the way the gospel is going to manifest itself in our lives is not simply that we're better people, but that we are better people in community. That our community reflects the grace and the mercy and the submission that Jesus Christ himself evidences in this chapter, right? He says, let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, the whole context of this hymn about the incarnation is for the Philippians to consider Jesus and his sacrifice as a means to unity in the body. That, that, that great statement there that Joe preached about last week about Jesus taking on the form of a servant, emptying himself, uh, even dying on a cross, that the point of that is to drive home to us that the gospel, that God saves us in Jesus Christ by his life, death, and resurrection. And, and, and that emptying, that taking on the form of a servant, that humiliation, that humbling that he does, is to be reflected in the way we live together as a church. I, um, I think that is something that's profound. And, and that's not just so that the church will have peace, but that is so that the church will be effective in its mission. The church at Philippi is on the verge of being ineffective in its mission because there's disunity. Not, and not just that there's disagreement. There's always disagreement in the church. But when that disagreement spills over into a fact where we are not unified, where we are no longer in... Uh, uh, warm fellowship with one another, even with those with whom we disagree, we have a problem. I find it interesting that the prayers that we that we prayed earlier today in, in church is something that's pretty profound because we pray for our enemies and for those who endeavor to do us harm. Okay. That it may please you, Lord, to forgive our enemies, persecutors and slanderers, right? I don't that's my least favorite prayer in this. <laughs> right? Because I'm like, all right, I'm going to try to forgive you. But really, down deep inside, I don't want God to forgive you. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one, right? And then we pray for all we, whom we have injured or offended for the forgiveness and remission of our sins, right? And then what do we cap that off with? We pray for those things so that then we pray for the mission of the church. That in faithful witness, and part of our faithful witness isn't just that we get the content of the gospel right, that's that's a, a bare minimum, but that we get the, the content of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners, Jesus Christ bearing the wrath of God, as we said earlier, the propitiation for our sins where he, he covers us, he, he becomes our substitute and dies our death for us. We get the content of that, but that is manifest in the way in which we live together as a community. And the fact is, if that's not manifest in the way in which we live together in a community, our mission suffers. It's been great to have uh, my uh, son, who's a, a, a platoon leader in the army, uh, in the infantry, uh, at, at, at home uh, this week. And we were talking with a friend who was asking him about other people that he serves with who graduated from a very fine institution. I will leave it unnamed. What's it like serving with them? And he said, well, some of the, the people that he serves with from that institution are some of the finest leaders and finest people he's ever met. But some of them are only doing, only did this because they could get four years of college for free and they're basically paying off their debt and they don't really care. And so this friend of mine said, well, how, how does that manifest itself? And he said, well, what a platoon leader does. He has two jobs, the mission, and as he, as my son would say, caring for his dudes, right? And, and that that is, that that's the point. 
and that those two things are not separate, but are actually intertwined. That as you care for your soldiers, as they learn to care for one another, it makes them effective in their mission. And that is something that is just is, is profound for us because I don't I don't typically think of it that way. But that's that there's a picture there for the church to take something away from that. I I have I've done some reading lately about uh, uh, men and women who have returned from Afghanistan and Iraq and who have post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and a very, very high percentage of those folks who return have a high desire, as they come back to the United States, to go back to the army. Seems ludicrous, doesn't it? But the reason for that is life as a civilian in uh, the United States is very individual. It's very isolating. It's all about yourself. When they're experience in the army was that they were in a community together, living, working, fighting uh, uh, with, uh, together with, with, with a unit, uh, that their lives depended on one another and that they had a very clear mission. Now, now maybe they don't think the mission, the, the mission to Afghanistan or to Iraq was that great a mission, but they loved being in community with their fellow soldiers, working together, living together, doing this and pursuing the same goal. They don't find that in the civilian world. So it's crazy that, that this thing, war, which would cause you to have post-traumatic stress, right, that, that their desire, the, the good thing about that, was to be in community with one another. Well, and, and that's what we know, right? One of the things that I, I think is very true is no soldier almost ever dies for their country. They die for their friends. They die for the people they're with, right? They, they die for those guys and women who are in their platoon with them. That's, that's, that's who they're connected to. That's, that's their sacrifice. That's, that's how they manifest their care for one another as they pursue the mission. I love this country. I love it so much. But I am here to tell you that we have a fatal flaw in our DNA, and that is an overemphasis upon the individual. Now, you know, I'm a big believer in this. I, I, I think one of the great things about America is that I define freedom as the right for me to live my life and the government to leave me alone. <laughs> right. That, that's that's what I want. And that's, I would prefer that over some other forms of government. The problem is we get so far into that kind of view of of our individualism like that, that it carries over into the way in which we think about our relationships within the church. And so what what happens to us is we begin to kind of uh, uh, universe or, or worship or elevate the view of me as the individual as the measure of all things Instead of seeing what the gospel is about, what the gospel, certainly individuals have to repent and come to faith in Christ. But we do that to become a part of a community, Christ's community, Christ's body, right? And so I came across this uh, quote this week that I think is really helpful. Life that places the self solely at the center ultimately becomes self-destructive. That's a theological truth, but also one also evidenced 
sociologically, politically, economically, and psychologically. We may not like to admit it, but many of our lives are bound by the heresy of individualism. Biblical wisdom has a different starting point. God's saving work always moves towards creating a faithful community of God's people. The inspiring stories of the Old Testament are framed around calling, liberating, and leading the people of Israel as a covenant community. Because remember, the, the, the Ten Commandments, a big chunk of the Ten Commandments is about how we live together. About how the worship of this God who saved these people, who delivered them from bondage, now as a reflection of his character, this is how we live together as a community, right? The fulcrum of God's justice always falls on the side of shaping the shared life of a people whose hospitality and faithfulness reflect the covenantal love of God. I don't like this last sentence because it sounds like something a coach would say. It's not about me. It's about the we, right? Okay, good. Let's get past that one. All right. (laughs) Jesus always called people not only to follow him, but to join with other disciples in doing so. And have you ever thought about that? I mean, the 12, the, the 12 disciples, were they were Republicans and Democrats and communists and socialists and rich and poor and revolutionaries. I mean, what a, what, what, how crazy is that? So on his last night with them before his crucifixion, he washed the feet of those closest to him, yearning for his love to bind them to one another on the day of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Spirit came to create the community of God's people as the body of Christ, the church. As the church's emerging life as recorded in Acts and the epistles, this continuing story describes the work of God's Spirit to form a community of those bound together as one in Christ's love. Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 12 that we are parts of one body and members of one another is as sharp a rebuke to the heresy of individualism that one can find. So it is a, it's a pretty profound thing for us to think about that what, that the, that the, the fact that the church on mission is going to be effective on mission because we love one another. Because we are sacrificing for one another. Because as Paul gets at there in chapter two, we're going to look like Jesus not just because we get the truth of the gospel right, but because the truth of the gospel is lived in the way in which we love and care for one another. Even with those with whom we disagree. Even with those like Euodia and Syntyche who are in open conflict within the church. Right? Now this is not about us all agreeing about the same things all all the time. But what it is about is... Uh, Me looking at you and recognizing that because of what Christ has done for me, for me to obey the gospel is for me to sacrifice, to set myself aside because of what Jesus Christ has done for your sake, right? And so that's what working our salvation out means. We're working it out together. We're working it out in community. We're working it out as we live and love and struggle and get sick and die and, and have babies and, and, and raise each other's kids and do all this stuff together. This is how it's getting worked out. This is how it's getting manifest in our lives as we, as we come to meet together to do the work of the church and we disagree and we, we have to figure out how to love one another. That's what he's getting at here. Um, and if you, if you don't believe that, the very next verse here about working out our, our, our uh, salvation with fear and trembling before God is 
do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that word there for disputing indicates that there was a possibility that there are people in the church who are taking one another to law courts to sue each other to settle their differences. That's to never happen. So these verses about working out our salvation is a bit between the verses about Jesus not grasping after equality with God and ending here, book, bookend, with a command not to grumble or to sue one another, right? And Paul wants us to see this, that God is at work in us, both to will and to work his good pleasure. We work this out in fear and trembling because it is the pleasure of God to see the unity of a diverse body of people centered in and around and with the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the sake of the world. That's what he's getting at here. This has been so hard for us this year, hasn't it? So hard. Uh, we have such a divergence of opinion about how to handle the virus, who to vote for, how to deal with racial injustice, how to deal with inequities, how to deal with all of these things. There, there's a variety of opinions and a variety of viewpoints. And, and, and we, we tend to air these things in a way where we are not concerned about uh, the perception of our brothers and sisters, where we are not concerned about how uh, uh, this might be taken. We, uh, many of us have lost practice of, of how to be with people because we've been so separated from one another and so... You know, all we can think about is, I need you to hear what I have to say. (laughs) Right? I need you to hear what I have to say. I need to be understood. Yes, we all do. But the fact of the matter is, and this this isn't about not contending for the truth. What it is, though, is recognizing that I am not an individual, I'm not separate, but I am a part of the very body of Christ. And mysteriously, I am part of the body of Christ with people with whom I disagree, with whom, with people with whom I am different. Now, the way we tend to do this, the way we, we tend to work this out and to make this work and the way to, to manage this is not exactly following what Paul says here, and that is where we, we submit and we sacrifice for the sake of others. We, uh, one of the things our family loves this time of year is, um, is uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We read it. We watch all the different ones. Uh, we can't decide if our favorite one is the one with Patrick Stewart or the one with Kermit the Frog. We, we really, we're big fans. We're big fans of, of Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, I confess that. So, uh, but one of, one of the things that they, when uh, uh, the narrator, Gons, uh, the guy with the hook nose, anyway, when he is reading this, he describes Scrooge as as solitary as an oyster. Which I just think, what a profound image! As solitary as an oyster. What makes an oyster solitary? They're in a shell. A hardened shell around them, aren't they? But even that oyster, we, we debate that this is what the Shelby's sit around and talk about. But even that oyster is in a bed with other oysters. 
right? Now that's the way that that looks like the way the church manages most of the time is I'm walled off from you so that you can't hurt me and you can't love me, but I am I am with you geographically or in proximity to you, but I have this shell around me, right? We're all like a bunch of oysters sometimes <laughs> gathered together. Whereas what Paul wants us to wants to see here is that there's this dynamic, this supernatural thing that happens by the Spirit of God when self-oriented, self-directed, self, you know, uh, oh, just self-compelled sinners moved by the fact that Jesus Christ gave up, did not grasp, emptied himself, took the form of a servant, that when they see that and they feel the weight of his sacrifice for them, that it moves them in sacrifice for those in the body of Christ, even those with whom they may differ. It doesn't mean we all have to agree about everything, but it does mean we have to love each other. And that is so hard, isn't it? It's easy so easy to love somebody who agrees with you and everything, who thinks you're great and smart and right. It's hard to love somebody who thinks you're not very smart, <laughs> that you've missed the boat, and that maybe you're wrong, but they're your brother or sister in Christ. And God has put you together in this situation, in this place, and in this time. The glory of God then gets manifest as differing sinners gather together, submitting, setting aside what is rightfully theirs for the sake of another, so that the glory of God shines through and the mission of the church is moved forward. That's Paul's heart uh, as manifest here. And we work that out because it's pleasurable to God as he sees his people live and work together like that. Uh, join with me now as we confess our sins together by using this uh, Wesley uh, confession uh, that's uh, printed in the bulletin and also up uh, on the screens behind me. Pray with me. Forgive them all, O Lord, our sins of omission and our sins of commission, the sins of our youth and the sins of our riper years, the sins of our souls and the sins of our bodies, our secret and our more open sins, our sins of ignorance and surprise, and our more deliberate and presumptuous sin, the sins we have done to please ourselves and the sins we have done to please others, the sins we know and remember and the sins we have forgotten, the sins we have striven to hide from others and the sins by which we have made others offend you. Forgive them, O Lord. Forgive them all for His sake, who died for our sins and rose for our justification and now stands at Your right hand to make intercession for us, Jesus Christ our Lord.
believers, hear these words of encouragement. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Please stand with us.